to an unknown God. Can you imagine a religious shrine with that inscription appearing in this society, or any, maybe? And yet, this is what Paul encountered when he arrived in Athens. He had been run out of the town where he had been previously because of contention and contentiousness with community leaders of various stripes, and so he had scooted on down to Athens from Berea, I think it was. And the text uh, tells us, at least in the portion before this, that as he walked about among Athens, among the uh, uh, scenes and sites in Athens, he noticed many, many, many shrines, religious shrines. Athens was a world center of religions. It was a world center of philosophical thought and discussion and debate. It was one of those places, too, that had thought leaders who also saw themselves as guardians of thought. Have you ever heard of anything like that? And so some of them asked Paul, what are these foreign divinities that you are spouting on about? They called him a word scatterer. Are these foreign divinities? A code phrase, perhaps, for the kind of charge that was brought against Socrates bringing about his death sentence, because he was charged with corrupting the young people by his teachings and died because of the controversies that ensued. So it's a charged atmosphere here in Athens as Paul begins to move about among the people. And so these thought leaders who confront him ask him, will you tell us about this Jesus and Anastasia? Anastasia? They thought he was talking about two gods, a god and a goddess, Jesus and Anastasia, when the word that gives us Anastasia is really the word for resurrection. He was talking about Jesus and resurrection, and they thought he was talking about divinities foreign to them, so they needed to know what it was about. And he said, sure. And they brought him to the high court of the community, the highest council uh, precincts of the community called the Areopagus. And from the Areopagus, they could look down the street and see a hill called the Acropolis on which many of the shrines stood that organized the various forms of worship that were available in Athens. And so Paul says, I've noticed all these shrines, all these altars, all these statues to this god and that god and she and he and another. And he said, I noticed another one. I noticed a shrine that has the inscription to an unknown god. And then later on he speaks of their worshiping this god in ignorance. I think we're tempted in our brilliance to suggest that he's calling them stupid. But the word for ignorance here is the word that, or uh, the word for unknown is the word that gives us our agnostic. What is an agnostic? It's someone who admits he doesn't know. Now, this person may say, I don't know, but I hope to know, so I keep exploring. Or this person might, may say, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> so I go on about my business without worrying about such things. The unknown God. It was really a, a shrine that attested to their openness to 
the mystery of the sacred that they felt was present among them, and they'd identified various ways of talking about this mystery. But Paul says, with all of that, there's this more, and I'm going to tell you about this more of the sacred that you don't know yet. And he began to say, this unknown God that I'm proclaiming to you is the God who made the world and everything in it, presumably also these, the genius that created these gods and goddesses. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all of us human beings life and breath and everything else. So he goes on speaking of the gospel in this way. When's the last time you heard the gospel proclaimed in those terms? He frames it a little different way than we normally think of it. And he finally comes down to where he says, God has hoped that you would, we would grope for him, probe for him, and find him. Though, indeed, he is not very far away from us. And here he may have been plugging into Stoic thought, which suggested that there is a divine principle alive in the world. It is that underground stream that causes everything to spring forth. The Stoic would think when he heard this, he's talking about us. For them, that uh, divine spring was rationality, reason, the human ability to think things through. Let's pray that this God will come alive again one of these days. The ability to reason rationally and think things through. That's who they saw as who the Stoics saw as the divine principle. And Paul went on to say he's not far from each of us because in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets, your own poets, have said, for we too are his offspring. Then Paul, or rather we, will pause, pause in Paul's words here and recognize that Paul is describing God as the creator, and as the creator he suggests that God is involved in a, 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 a process that's still ongoing, not completed yet, a process that's on its way to completion, a process called creation. God is building something. As I thought about what this, what this something God is building is, a song title came to mind, so in a sense I'm preaching on a text from Sarah McLaughlin, called Building a Mystery. You can go and look at the words of that song if you want to. The only thing related to this message today is the title, Building a Mystery. Because it occurred to me that we are right there with the Athenians in some measure. Because we all sense a mystery that is unfolding in history and we don't understand everything that's going on or why or how. And yet... We have been taught to believe that it is going somewhere worthwhile. So the phrase building a mystery came to mind around this God, this, this God of our unknowing. Let's, let's, let's call the shrine that. The God of our unknowing. Mystery. Paul addresses this mystery in another place by saying, How great are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is... What do you think he said next? 
What do you think he said this mystery is? If you know Colossians, you'll remember that he said this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of the fullest life you can imagine. So what might this mean and how might the mystery unfold? How does God build this mystery? And what is our role in it? I encountered a simple story, as the Bill Gurley Sunday School class did in the uh, N.T. Wright commentary on the book of Acts, that just kept resounding in my mind as I thought about this, and as I worked with the whole story as it unfolds in the book of Acts in our class over the past uh, program year. And I want to offer this story as a way of possibly discerning how God builds the mystery that God is building in the unfolding process of creation in which we're involved. This is a story about a music teacher working with her class to learn a new song. And you know how exciting and challenging and interesting such an encounter can be. Listen to the tune, says the music teacher, and the children sitting all around her, listen. Spellbound, they love this kind of thing. And after they've listened to the song, the teacher says, okay, now, sing it back to me. One by one, Johnny first. And so Johnny does his best. Doesn't make it all the way, but he does his best. And then Sophie, she does a little better. Then Philip does a little better still. Why do you suppose each one is doing a little better than the other? They've had a new increment of learning, exposure, experience. Well, says the teacher, you're not doing badly. Let's listen to it again. So they sit quietly, listening to the same song, the same music again. Now, Sam, your turn, the teacher says. Sam's confident. He sings it right through. That's it. You're beginning to get it, the teacher says. And one by one they try until each one of them knows it and has sung it all the way through. Now, think very hard. You're going to have to pay keen attention now, the teacher said, because I want you to listen to the song again, and this time listen for the other part that's playing as well as the tune you've just learned. And of course, this time, the tune is loud and clear. They, they hear it and almost nothing else. But the more they listen, the more they realize there is something sort of riding over the top of the tune. It's called a descant. Another tune which goes on top of the first tune, and it blends with the first tune, but it's different than the first tune, and it soars above it, and yet fits in all the way through. Okay, what about it, Sarah? Ask the teacher, can you sing the descant? So Sarah gives it a try, but she keeps slipping back into the main tune because that's so familiar. So do one or two of the others. Listen one more time, says the teacher. This time they're ready for it. One by one they try it until more or less each one of, sing of them is singing the descant appropriately. Now, says the teacher, here's where 
we reach for a real challenge. I want the boys to sing the tune and the girls to sing the descant. Well, of course, it was absolute chaos first time through. It would be with me, too, when I try. Brad can attest to that from our experience in choir, that we have our share of chaos when we're learning music. But gradually, something happens. And what happens is that there sounds through the room that most wonderful of gifts, the sound of harmony. Think about it. Who of us has not experienced a moment when the harmonies of a song brought something new and fresh and encouraging and uplifting or perhaps challenging to us? Just the experience of hearing beautifully done harmonies in music is a tremendous gift. Here, not only are they hearing the harmonies, they're understanding that they are making the harmonies. Get it? <laughs> they're making the harmonies, and they're part of the sound that they're making. And it's not just sound that they're making. What they're making is a community. A community that is joined at heart in one worthy objective. And every member of this community of sound, this community of music, every one of these children is giving their best to doing it the way they understand it, need, it is to be done. So what's going on in this experience of children learning this song as a group with its harmonies what they're learning is not just a song. They're learning how to participate in the harmonies of life. You know what else they're learning? By learning that, they're learning justice. They're learning something about God's justice. Because God's justice is human life working in harmony so that the aims God has for the good and the beauty and the wholeness and the joy of humanity may, at least incrementally, little by little, be met, be experienced, be expressed. The mystery God is building is the mystery of a community who is, who is able to live in God's justice by the power of God's love for the sake of God's peace. And we're in that mystery that God is building because we're in history. And history is where that mystery gets built. And that aim is where God seems to be taking us. Here's one of the reasons almost in closing but not quite. Here's one of the reasons that I identify this mystery as justice in reading the book of Acts. Paul went on after the text we read this morning to say, since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver. 
Money's not God. Or stone. Our buildings can't be God. And God is not an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, agnostic kind of unknowing, our being steeped in mystery, now he commands all people everywhere to reorient their hearts, to reconfigure and reshape their hearts. He uses the word that we usually translate repent. Because God has... Now listen... Because God has established a day on which he intends to call the world to account with full and proper, wait for it, justice. I thought God was taking us to something called salvation that didn't have anything to do with justice, but simply with forgiveness of our sins. And yet if we understand forgiveness of our sins, we understand that that is an equipping for doing life well and truly. Justice. I'm finding my place because I've got too many notes. A full and proper justice by a man whom he has appointed. Wonder who that is. God has given all people his pledge of this by raising this man from the dead. In this statement, he never says the name Jesus. He's not concerned so much about them getting acquainted with a boy who grew up in Nazareth and what it was like with his family when he was growing up. He's interested in announcing that this man who lived his wife in, the, in this superbly just way that he did has been resurrected. And that means a new world has begun and we're invited to be part of it. So... In conclusion, I would like to ask that we do this. That we take our hymnal again, back to 403, if you don't mind. And this time I'm going to read verse 2 and invite you to join together in reading verse 3. The title is, When in Our Music God is Glorified. That was a lot harder for me to sing this morning than it used to be because I was in a congregation for several years that sang it regularly. It's kind of new to this congregation, I think. But here's verse 2. And with these two verses, 2 and 5, I want to conclude. I'll read verse 2 and I want to ask you to read with me verse 5. How often, making music, we have found a new dimension, a new dimension in the world of sound, as worship moved us to a more profound alleluia. Together now in verse 5, please. Let every instrument be tuned for praise. Let all rejoice who have a voice to raise. And may God give us faith to sing always. Hallelujah. I want to change that last phrase a bit. May God give us faith to seek always God's peace that flows from love's just and generous care. Amen. <laughs>